Well, hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle. You may remember me from Right Angle. I'm here with Steve Green and Scott Ott, and uh, it's good to be back after uh, missing a couple weeks. Uh, I was uh, fortunate in, in terms of choosing my topic for this week. Um, I, I usually go to Instapundit and just steal whatever Steve Green generally pipes and just have him answer his own questions. But um, looking at, at Instapundit... <laughs> it's easy er for me. Looking at Instapundit earlier today... Uh, I saw a post by Steve Green on Instapundit that, that basically was titled The Russia That Might Have Been. And I'd like mm. to talk about that. The particular article that Steve is referencing, of course, is The Russia That Might Have Been had Vladimir Putin not taken office and had not been Vladimir Putin. But the reason I was gone for the last two weeks was because I was finishing writing and then shooting uh, an eight-part series on the birth of the Soviet Union called An Empire of Terror uh, for Daily Wire. And so... In the course of the extensive four or five months of research I did for that, I ran into a couple of cases of the Russia that might have been, and these are heartbreaking stories, and they're 100 years old, and I thought maybe I'd share them uh, with you guys. Uh, Steve, we'll start, we'll start in uh, 2000, I'm sorry, we'll start in 1917, and then we'll work our way backward from that. So in 1917, there were actually two Russian revolutions. In October of 1917, old-style uh, calendar, uh, the Tsar abdicates because of all this turmoil. The capital was Petrograd, which is now St. Petersburg. The Tsar abdicates. The entire imperial government falls apart because it's not just the Tsar leaving. It's the entire idea of, of the aristocracy and all of that. And a group of people take over uh, what's called the provisional government. And the the leader of the provisional government soon emerged as, as a man named um, Alexander Kerensky. Uh, Kerensky was a very theatrical guy, had tremendous personal charisma. But after the Tsar fell, the provisional government issued a statement in, in the paper. This is their first day, essentially. And the provisional government, with Kerensky as its uh, leader, basically said this in, in public, in the paper. They said, here are the policies that our provisional government are going to abide by. Complete freedom of speech, freedom of the press, national elections that are held up by secret ballot with multiple parties, uh, unionization and work and right for union workers. Every single thing you could possibly imagine in a representative republic were listed publicly by this organization and their entire credibility. Th there, there had been an existing parliament called the Duma. Uh, Nicholas II, the, the last czar, had created the Duma in the aftermath of the 1905 aborted revolution with Bloody Sunday where they gunned down all these people. So the people were so furious that Nicholas II said, okay, I'll give them some kind of parliament. It was just stacked and staffed by, by aristocrats and people loyal to the Tsar. It was a rubber stamp parliament and it didn't even need to be because once he established it, Nicholas completely ignored it. So after the, February, the first revolution, the February revolution, Kerensky and his provisional government had made public promises to not only provide all of the protections that exist in the West, but also to elect a constituent assembly on a nationwide ballot, secret ballot, with open parties, and they could not get their act together enough. They postponed it once, then they postponed it again uh, till, till October 15th, and then on October 15th, they postponed it till middle of November, and by October 25th, there was no provisional government anymore. So... Kerensky had 
his heart was in the right place. He had, he had, he defended uh, you know uh, people who were killed in the massacre and and tried to get money for them. He defended workers and and tried to establish you know uh, restitution for them. But he was fundamentally an actor, and he, he he was very vain and very flighty. But mostly, Steve, he was fatally naive. He could not recognize the threat that was coming from Lenin. The British intercepted. The British knew that Lenin was entering Russia through this sealed train across Germany. The British said, we can stop him at this town. He's got to go through this town, which we control. Called, essentially cabled the Kerensky government and said, Lenin is on his way, and he's determined to destroy your government and bring a communist revolution. Do you want us to hold him? And Kerensky said, no, no, we're a democracy. We're based on democratic principles. He's more than mm -hmm. welcome to enter the country. We can, I'm sure we'll be able to deal with him. He had no idea who he was up against. But that is the first example in the research that I did that just make you want to cry. It just make you want to cry. Because yeah. if this Kerensky government had been able to hold that assembly, for the that, that election for the constituent assembly, it would have given the one thing they didn't have, which was popular credibility, and there would not have been a communist revolution. That, any government other than Kerensky's could have, could have crushed Lenin and hung Lenin and Trotsky for treason because they took German money in order to do all this stuff. So that's one of the rushes that might have been. It wasn't a communist revolution. Let's let's be clear about that. It was it was a communist coup. This was not a popular revolution. It was no. very well organized at the grassroots level with the local Soviets, the workers' councils, but it was not a popular revolution. It was a coup, and I I I I want to be very clear about that because you should never fall into the trap of using the left's language because they lie. Um, I always want to. Whenever I mention communists, I always want to put a very bad word that our, our supporters don't like me saying on the air in front of it, because that's what they are. That's what the um, they, communists are, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you talk about the, uh, the Russia that could have been. Uh, you know, Russia was both industrialized, actually in, in the early part of the 20th century, before the, the first war, before the First World War, um, Russia was actually industrializing even more rapidly than Imperial Germany did during the during the 1880s. And I will it get was, to that. I will get to that with Scott's question. Yes. Okay. Good. So let's uh, well, let's we'll plant that seed. Um, the Duma, its power waxed and waned. Um, by the time of the by the time the war started, it it was definitely on the wane. But um, reform was still in the air, not not revolution. So. I think it's really impossible to talk about the Russia that could have been without talking about the Europe that could have been had it not been for the First World War, which is, I think, maybe the worst single event in human history. And this, this, without this question, is no exaggeration. Without World War One, you don't get World War Two. You don't get the Communist Revolution. You don't get the Cold War. You get none of that without World and War One. Not only that, the First World War sapped all of Europe's cultural vitality. Uh, and optimism, uh, yes. Optimism, self-doubt, self-loathing, all of it seeped into the culture. And that's what made World War II, the even bigger and more popular sequel, uh, even more terrible than, than the First War. Um, I think it, it, it's really impossible to talk about what Russia could have been without talking about what Europe had been, because that's the direction Russia was moving. Uh, Russia was finally doing the thing where um, Russia had only sort of belatedly joined this this thing we call Western, this 
beautiful, glorious thing we call Western civilization. It was it was so far out on Europe's frontier that uh, even as recently as 500 years ago, people in London, France, Germany really didn't know what was out there past the the it's, Polish Lithuanian it's Commonwealth. It's half European it was, and half Asia. It's 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 yeah. it's in another You're, region there. Yeah, here be dragons. That's right on on the map. Yeah, to exaggerate a little bit, but uh, during the uh, the nineteenth and the early parts of the twentieth century, Russia was really moving westward. Uh, thanks in in no small part to, uh, to 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 Peter the Great, who moved the capital from from Moscow to to Saint Petersburg, and. Uh, don't get me started on the Muscovites. They were, if you want to talk about colonialism, because you know colonialism is the world's big evil now, the Muscovites are maybe the world's most successful colonists because they're the ones who 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 took over what is now all of all of Russia and uh, established a really nasty regime. Several of them, as opposed to uh, the old Kievan Rus, which was uh, quite democratic for its for its time. It's 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 a shame that it was the Muscovites and not the the Kievan Rus who became the dominant culture in in Russia but that's that's an that's a subject for another day um but bill the the Russia that could have been we look at Russian culture today and it is both great and a shadow of its former self 100 plus years ago again before the war Russian literature Russian food Russian music Russian dance all of it it was it was a the, among the best in the world, they, they they rivaled the French. They were the envy of of basically everybody. And then you get communists who destroyed it all because Kerensky and his provisional government could not could not could not put it together act together in concert enough to number one to get that constituent assembly election. That was the number one thing, but also because Kerensky personally just simply could not see the threat that Lenin posed. He kept thinking the threat was going to come from the army and Lenin was destroying him in Pravda. And, and, and by the time he realized it was too late. So Scott, let's go back uh, 15 years before uh, the communist revolution, which happened in October. You had the February revolution, the czar departs provisional government has seven months can't get its act together. Lenin has a coup d'etat, which, by the way, was not the entire city of, of Petrograd. Best estimates are during the night of the revolution, one half of 1% of the population was involved in the so-called revolution. And at 9 o'clock that night, the mayor of Petrograd sent a delegation to Kerensky's camp and to Lenin's camp asking if the if the revolution was on yet because it, it was it was uh, it was just a, a just a simple. 50 guys on the street kind of thing, you know. So let's go back. And the, the, the first one with Kerensky I knew something about. This, the one that I didn't know about is, is even more tragic. So 10 or 15 years before um, the czar abdicates, here's the backstory. Alexander II, Pope Alexander II, that would be Nicholas's grandfather, emancipates the, the Russian serfs in uh, 1861, two years before Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, at least nine million people. A serf was somebody, you couldn't sell a serf individually, but the serf was the property of the person who owned that land. They were property. They had, people could mortgage their their estates against the value of the, of the human beings that were working for them. So Alexander II gives them this land and emancipates these serfs. And they farm this land in a system um, called... Uh, open field. So if you can believe this, prior to the revolution, you had these these peasants now living on land. It was a communal farm, but peasants owned an individual row. 
and they might own another row that is not adjacent to the row they have. So you might you might have a row, plant a row, tend a row, and, and, and harvest a row, and you might have another row, quarter of a mile that way, and maybe a third row on the other side of this um, uh, this commune. And you've got common pasture ground and all this stuff. So this is causing these peasants to basically at war with each other and murder each other. They're constantly fighting over these rows. So here's the Russia that, that might have been. Um, in 1906, Nicholas II finds a guy who had the only oblast, the only province in Russia that was stable in the rioting that had followed the Bloody Sunday massacre at the end of the 1905 revolution. And Lenin was a theorist. He spent 17 years in exile reading about power, theorizing about power, reading about Marx. But the guy who was running this oblast was a guy named Pyotr Stolypin. And Stolypin had grown up on a, on a manor. He had... Lenin had studied Marx, Pyotr uh, Stolypin had studied agriculture, and, mm. and he had the physical courage to talk to people when there were uprisings and say, all right, what's the problem here? Walked right out in the middle of them without a bodyguard and, and did all these things. So the Tsar brings him to the central government, makes him interior minister, three months later makes him prime minister. And then in 1906, he launches what became known as the Stolypin Agrarian Reforms. Now, I know this is a lot of setup, but it's, it's important to understand this. What he basically does is he looks at these open fields, these unenclosed fields, and says, this is madness. Russia had been suffering from hunger for the history of Russia because this is a medieval farming method, method disappeared from Europe in the 1600s. Stolypin takes these communes and says, no, we're not doing this anymore. He takes them all and, and, and sections them off into enclosed, privately owned farms. He not only gives each one of these peasants private property, he advances agricultural technology, and if you can believe this, sets up a government program to offer credit to peasants to buy a cow or to buy agricultural equipment, to buy grain, or to expand the size of their property. Stolypin said that this is a wager on the serious and the sober. And then mm. within three or four years, Russia becomes the number one agricultural exporting country, number one agricultural growth in the world, number one industrial growth in the world. By 1916, Russia is producing more grain than Argentina, Canada, and the United States combined, 30% more grain than those three countries combined. He brings private property into the mix, and all of a sudden you've got this stable working Russia where this guy is basically saying, if you don't own property, you will be forever the slave of somebody else. It's Jeffersonian. So Stolypin is assassinated in 1911, I want to say. Of course. By, so by socialist revolutionaries. Uh, they made 10 attempts on his life, and he said, bury me where they kill me. Uh, the brave socialist revolutionaries put a bomb in a dacha he was in, didn't kill Stolypin, but did manage to blow the legs off his 15-year-old girl who died <sighs> in his arms, plus 23 other innocent people. So, if Stolypin had not been killed in the Kiev Opera House by a socialist assassin, if he had lived through the abdication of the Tsar, he was falling out of favor with the Tsar, if he'd just been alive, then very likely he would have been the person to take over the provisional government. And unlike Kerensky, Stolypin was strong, he was tough with, with the radicals, and if he had survived that, if he had survived you would have had a man who had brought, had already brought private ownership, private property, growth incentives, respect for human rights, all of the things that we take for granted in the West, 
if he had survived and, and had been in charge of the provisional government, he would, have, he would have had the Soviets executed for treason because there was ample evidence they were taking German money to overthrow their own government. And Russia wouldn't have been Russia. There would have been no Cold War. There would have been no Korea, no Vietnam, no communist China. There would have been no conflicts in, in, in South America, throughout Africa. None of this would have happened. So what you've got with Russia is you've got Russia starving with the serfs on their unenclosed land. You've got private property. Now Russia's a major grain exporter. Then the communists take over. Now they're stuck in starvation again. Then Lenin goes to private property with the new economic policy and all these shortages disappear. Then you go back to communism again. There's no clearer evidence of this, right? And you look at this and you just say, this is the greatest catastrophe in human history. And I think that's inarguable. Um, and it's always hard to tell, like you change one event, you certainly would have affected everything on the timeline with which we're aware. We don't know what other stupid things would have happened as, you know, because there's always people trying to louse things up along the way. But the fact that it took, you know, the pilgrims lesson 300 years to get to Russia is a striking thing. I mean, that this, the pilgrims to uh, these United States, what became these United States, almost starved to death until they came up with virtually the same plan, which was let, let's give each man and woman their little plot of land and let their family tend it and let them be responsible for it. Uh, it's the biblical injunction, he that does not work shall not eat, you know? And so the people who were willing to work were eating and so suddenly everybody became willing to work. While you were talking about that, I thought, you know, can you imagine when you were in high school, if they came to you and said, look, uh, we're gonna be selling chocolate bars and the person who sells the most chocolate bars will win a Camaro. And, uh, and then, you know, what your reaction would have been to that. Or if they had come to you and say, look, we're going to be selling chocolate bars and the school that sells the most chocolate bars, uh, the principal will win a Camaro. Yeah. <laughs> That's Which how it works. one would have driven you to sell more chocolate bars? Um, you know, yeah, so, sit at home and eat the chocolate bars. It's funny because there, you're always hearing from the from the socialists and communists and even progressives and sometimes Democrats um, this idea that, you know, if you really care about your country, ask not, you know, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And and but that's not how to get a great country. How to get, get a great country is to let people work for that which really motivates them personally. And the the overflow of that will benefit the country. If you go directly at trying to benefit the country, you'll benefit neither the individual nor the country. But if you let the individual satisfy his own needs for satisfaction in his work, for uh, a certain level of comfort, for uh, to, uh, avoidance of backbreaking labor, you'll get great innovations, you'll get great ideas, you'll get plenty of food and plenty of tax revenue. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just stunningly tragic. The other thing I think this whole lesson brings up, Bill, is that for people who look, I, I, always, I always flinch when I hear a radio commentator or news person uh, talk about uh, Russia's war, for example, or Russia did this, or Russia did that. I always want them to say, no, 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 it's, the, it's the government weasels in yeah. Russia. It's not, the Russian people are capable of this kind of a life. They didn't get the chance. 
you know, they were they were shut down. They had an opportunity, they showed that they could do it, and then they were shut down. And so there's not a group of people on earth where you say, well, they just need to be ruled by autocracy because they're not capable of the kind of free thinking and innovation and hard work and discipline and responsibility and prudence that we are. It's baloney. Um, these principles are timeless and they're boundaryless. Yes. And the, the communists went into the country twice in the Red Terror in uh, 18, uh, sorry, 1918 to about 1922, and then the, the, the Stalin's terror famine in the early 30s. And when they went back the second time, uh, the, the hatred towards the communists were so great that the peasants of Russia in, in 1930 or 31, when they realized that the communists were coming back again to take everything that they had, rather than give their livestock to the NKVD, the, the, the descendant of the Cheka and the antecedent of the KGB and the FSB, they decided they'd rather kill their livestock. So you've got to think about this. These are people whose only wealth exists in the form of a cow. Right, They've got that hut that they've lived in their entire lives, a cow or two, makes them a kulak, makes them a rich peasant, makes them an enemy of the state and, and, and subject for massacre. And they hated the communists so much that they killed their own livestock. They killed 25 million head of cattle, 15 million horses. They cut the, ha- they cut the livestock of the, of the Soviet Union in half, out of, just out of spite, essentially, out of revenge. I have two pieces of trivia to leave you with. Um, in terms of the Russia that might have been. First of all, um, take a look at this uh, image. It looks like some kind of beautiful Disney-esque winter wonderland, right? It's beautiful white walls and the gold spires and everything. It looks like a fantasy land. You know what that is? That's the Kremlin painted white. And it had been painted white prior to about a decade before the communists got there. When the, you see the Kremlin in white rather than in red, it becomes something completely different. That's the Russia that might have been. This, this, this fairy tale palace eventually became the red-walled Kremlin because of, of the communists. And I'll leave you with another piece of trivia uh, that I learned for this. Just so we're up on current events, I just finished recording, writing and recording. It took me five months to write and finished recording last week, which is why I wasn't here a series for Daily Wire called An Empire of Terror. It's about the history of, this, of the Russian Revolution and, and the terror state that existed. And I did a lot of research, a lot of research on this. And here's one little interesting piece of trivia that may interest you bringing this back to where we started, namely the Russia that might have been as of Putin. Lenin was an extremely, uh, well, he was a theorist. Theorist. He was he, when he said we need to kill twenty million people or ten or five or whatever, shoot a hundred of them. Those aren't real people. That's just a theory for him. Lenin eventually moved to a, 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 a house in Gorky, and he had four bodyguards on the premises. He had three live-in servants. He had two secretaries and a cook. After Lenin died in nineteen twenty-four, after a number of strokes, the cook, who had been so well trusted ended up going to cook for Stalin, and he became one of two or three people that lived with Stalin for 20 years. So these guys have, the number of people that live with them is usually in one hand. And the cook spent three or four years living with Lenin on a daily basis and then living with Stalin on a daily basis for 20 years. I made the argument that this cook had the ringside seat of the Soviet Union, that nobody else in the world had the, had the, 
position of being that close, watching the Soviet Union going from this agrarian nothing to a nuclear superpower. And that cook's uh, name was Spiridon. Uh, that's his first name. His last name was Putin. His name was Spiridon Putin. He was Vladimir Putin's grandfather. And mm. Vladimir Putin spent 13 years of his life listening to stories from his grandfather, who had spent four years living with the great Lenin and then another 20 years living with the great Stalin. So if you want to know why Putin does what he does, it is because he had childhood stories from his grandfather, who was there, who told him everything about the wonder of the Soviet Union, and he told him, well, if we had to kill a few 20 million people in order to make this country into a great economic powerhouse, then that's a small price you have to pay. And that's who you're dealing with. You're dealing with the grandson of a guy who was the only guy who lived in the same house as Lenin and Stalin. And that's the Russia that Vladimir Putin grew up with worshiping. He is going to be the last czar. He's going to be the last red czar. He's going to be the last person who'd been a member of the Communist Party. I didn't think he'd last the summer. I was dead wrong about that. But he is a communist. Vladimir Putin was born in Leningrad. He wasn't born in St. Petersburg. He was born in Leningrad. And he tried to join the KGB at 16. This is the government agency that murdered 20 million of their own people. If you don't understand this about him and his worldview, then nothing makes sense in Russia. If, on the other hand, you do understand this, that he's coming from a nurture of the worst government in the history of the world, the most ruthless government in the history of the world, most cruel government in the history of the world, then he makes sense. Everybody thinks it was Stalin. It was all Lenin. Lenin wrote the manual and Stalin followed the instructions. This is what communism is. It is total disregard for reality. It's all about theory. It's disregarding the evidence right in front of their eyes and killing as many people as they have to so they can have their theory and stay in power. That's the Russia that might have been. And all of the history downstream of that could have been very, very, very different. Better late than never is what I'm saying. So we'll see. For Steve Green and Scott Ott, I'm Bill Whittle. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again for all of you, especially our members, for um, for your patience in the last two weeks of absence and especially the last three months of me just boring into this thing. But uh, we expect to be finished by the end of the summer, and, and hopefully when it's done, you'll think it was worth it because when you see this series, you will never, ever, ever, ever let not only will you never talk about communism the same way, you'll never let anyone talk about communism in your presence again after you learn what actually happened to that, to that poor benighted country. We'll see you next time on Right Angle.